God is able. And so if you're visiting today, we're going to look at a culmination of really since last August that ends in 8. And it's to be a great comfort to you who are here this morning, who are believers. And life is not so good. Life is hard. Maybe there are doubts. Maybe there are sins in your life. Maybe there are the constant things that seem to be over and over and over. But because we believe the gospel is the work of God in Christ, there's great comfort. And so I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8 as we end this section. What then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that. Who is raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations? Or distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor height, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, there are, I'm sure, a lot of hurting people that are here today. Those who are confused, confused about you, confused about the gospel. Uh, confused about their own sin or the mistakes that they've made, bad business decisions, uh, things that have been said in marriages that uh, wish had not been said, marriages that have been broken, divorce, maybe not raising the children exactly right, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of confusion. And Father, without these words and without these scriptures, um, there would not be much hope. But we thank you for what you've done for us in Christ and because of him and his work on our behalf that there is great hope. Father, would you comfort those whose hearts are broken this morning? Loneliness and fear, paralysis, maybe even being given over and passive Father, help them understand who you are this morning through your word. And we ask it in your name. 
and for your sake. Amen. On Thursday, Mary Beth and I celebrated our 33rd anniversary. The only problem is she wasn't here. <clears throat> it's actually, I think, the first anniversary that we've never had time together, spent, spent our anniversary together. But it so happened that it fell on my day off, and so uh, on Thursday I had the opportunity to go sit out in my backyard and think about the things I'm thankful for, especially my marriage. And I'm grateful for our marriage. Some have uh, described marriage as the ball and chain. Right? You've heard that. Meet my ball and chain here. It's kind of the world's way of looking at the loss of freedom. That, that, that this person, rather than, as it were, setting me free, has is, is brought bondage in my life. I can't play the field. And I'm kind of stuck in this situation. And my marriage is the exact opposite of that. The things I've learned in being married to Mary Beth, it is actually, I discovered a freedom that I, I don't think I'd have ever had as a single guy if I'd remained single. Certainly not at, at that time. And again, it doesn't mean you have to be married to understand this because you can be completed in Christ. But it's through our marriage that I think I've discovered more of who I am and our union together to find my sense of calling and our, and our calling to the, uh, together in God's kingdom. But what I discovered fairly early on in my marriage is the reason for this. And if you're married, I want you to think about this. Is my, my relationship with Mary Beth was in the context of her commitment to her vow. And so what I learned uh, pretty early on as a young man, and every man wants to be Prince Charming, I only discover he is not even close. And you realize that you're a disappointment. You realize you can't deliver the way you want to deliver. But what I realize is that my relationship with my wife was not based on my performance, but it, honest to goodness, was based on her commitment to her vow. And that vow is only as good as the integrity of the person. And therefore, it changed my relationship with her. You mean I don't have to perform. And so it, it freed me up in so many ways to, 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 to live a life that, that's not under the burden of performance. It changes my relationship with her. Changed my relationship with other people. I was free to fail or succeed. It gave me courage in many ways to take risk uh, with her. You understand that? This is exactly what Paul is getting at in our text. He's talking about the very character of God and the way the character of God impacts the life of Paul. That God is committed to us. The Hebrew, the Old Testament talks about chesed love. And that, that word there in the Hebrew is never uses it in terms of man's relationship to man, but only God's relationship to man because only he has the character to fulfill the vow. And here's the thing you've got to understand. If you are in Christ, he's delighted in his commitment to you. He delights in you. And this is exactly what our text is trying to tell us. And until 
I can convince you of that as a minister of the gospel, but more importantly, the Holy Spirit himself convinces you of the character of God and the thing that he says in this text is true for you, then you will continue to live a life of shame and guilt. You will live in the 20th century or the 21st century, whatever century we're in now, the pathologies that we have, the addictions that many of you have this morning. Until you understand the character of God, but not only understand it, but begin to lean on that, act on that, you will not experience this text. I'm sorry. Because you see, the Bible teaches, and we've been learning that we shall be justified by faith, but the just shall live by faith. We're justified by faith, but the just shall live by faith. The whole idea of getting married and taking a vow is you don't know what the heck you're getting into, right? Right? And so you make vows, and it's in the context of those vows that you're able to be married, that you're able to begin to enjoy one another and to enjoy life, but that vow is only as good as the character of the person who makes that vow. And here we have the ultimate character, do we not? Now, I don't know what you believe about that. I mean, you might be here, you might not be a Christian today, and we're going to talk about some interesting words if you're not. We're going to talk about election. We're going to talk about predestination. We're going to talk about God justifying. But this text is for believers. That if these things be true, you must begin to act on them. And it doesn't mean you're not a Christian if you don't, but it does mean this. Your your marriage is not going to change. You're not going to change. You're still going to be blind as a bat to what everybody else sees. And so this is what I want us to look at this morning. And the way I want to do it is basically through uh, just two things. Uh, to understand how Paul go, wh- what affected his life. I mean, in, in fact, in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, far be it that Paul was into prosperity doctrine and prosperity gospel. If I do this and God's obligated to do that, and if I give so much into this show, then I get so much back and blah, blah, blah. Notice what Paul says. In his own life, this one who believed that God is faithful. I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, and he goes on, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches who is weak and I do not feel weak, who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn. Would you call that prosperity doctrine? But the reason he was willing to enter into all these things is because, well, when he saw Christ raised from the dead, that helps. But he began to study for three years and he begins to see that God showed his love and his mercy and his character in the person of Christ, that he is the Messiah. And then he has finished the work and so Paul responds in that way, that he is willing to go through all those things. What about us? So here here are the two things that we learn from Paul. 
from this text. Here's how we're going to do it. Number one, we must see his reasoning. And then we must see and hear his conviction that comes out of this reasoning. First, let's look at his impeccable reasoning. Notice what he says in verse uh, 31 there. What shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What things? What things is he speaking of here? Everything he's been talking about for the last eight chapters. He's giving the conclusion of what the implications are for a believer who has been saved by grace through Jesus Christ. In the first four chapters, if you're here today and you're not a believer, you need to go go study it. And maybe you're seeking, you're trying to figure out what is Christianity, Christianity all about. Paul nails it in 1 through 4 when he said, here it is, Christ must come and he must substitute. And he has substituted for his people. Romans 5 through 8 is the implication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the implication upon those who are called of God is Romans 8, which begins with no condemnation to you if you're in Jesus Christ. No condemnation. I don't care what you feel. I don't care what you've done. There is no condemnation. And then he ends with this great passage that there is no separation. And I'll tell you, that is the longing of the heart of the believer to hear that. But what do we mean when we talk about God's sovereign grace? And, and this is important to understand. <laughs> um, the majority of teaching does not teach in the sovereign God. It teaches in the sovereign audience. And, that, and, that, and somehow you're still sovereign. That God is not able ultimately to get the job done if you do not respond. That is not the gospel. If you're not responding to the gospel, it's because it's not a sovereign gospel. It's a man-centered gospel. But all through this text, Paul is using words like predestined, foreknown, foreloved, before the world began. He knew us. He predestined us. We're the elect of God. It is a sovereign grace. God is king. And God is willing to save whoever will come. But it is sovereign. It is sovereign grace. And the point is this. How how can you even begin to care at the end of the text that nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ if he is not sovereign? I mean, don't you need to know that God is sovereign in spite of your failures? Okay, stop and think about your sins this week that you haven't repented of yet. Think about where you are and where you'd like to go and go, you know, I know I need to get my act together. I need to be a better Christian. I need to do this and I need to do that. Hey, how have you been doing on that? But you see, Paul reasons that real freedom, real life comes because God is sovereign. And he has chosen a people for himself in Christ. 
just like my wife and I responded to each other's vows, and I know that there's incredible freedom knowing that I am loved with an unconditional love. Freedom not to always worry if I'm going to say the right thing or not, which, which I, I have a tendency not to say the right thing sometimes. But to know that my standing before my wife is based on her vow. But here we have a sovereign vow. I know we talked about this yesterday. Let, let me tell you the implications uh, last week. Let me tell you the implications uh, if you don't believe in a sovereign God. You, there is no freedom. And we looked at uh, several religions uh, and, and, and even secular science that basically is a, a form of fatalism. Uh, that human responsibility is ultimately not there. And you know what it leads to? It leads to just kind of giving up and being passive. Well, you know, I'm, I'm stuck in the cog. I can't change. Oh, yes, you can. If you're not changing, then you're not getting the gospel. But, but if you have a religion that says, well, you know, God did his part, but he's up there somewhere and it's up to you, you know what? That is not freedom. That is absolute bondage, and it will lead you into being given over. That's why some of you have addictions. Because your view of God is, well, he's up there somewhere, but he's not that involved in my life. And then the other side is to believe that God is not sovereign at all. That, that free will is your free will. It's, everything, it's all left up to you. Everything's left up to you. And you know what that leads to? It leads to absolute paralysis. Fear. What if I make the wrong decision? What if I do the wrong thing? I remember when I was about uh, 14 years old, I came uh, right up on a wreck, uh, well, one a wreck. A, a woman uh, was going to her mailbox, and about the time she was bending over to look at the mail, a ladder truck was going by, and the ladder slipped off at the right moment, hit her in the head, and killed her. And I was one of the first people on it. And I found out later that day that she died, and here I was, and I was not a believer at the time, and, uh, and I'm thinking, well, what if she just watched TV about two minutes more? Maybe if she had gotten a glass of iced tea. Or maybe if somebody had said something to her. Or maybe if there was no mail that day. You mean she died because she went to get her mail of her own free choice? And that leads to paralysis. But what we see here in our text is that God is sovereign. And that he is able to accomplish his will in your life. Hey, some of y'all think this way, seriously, because I thought about it this way for a while, that you screwed up so bad, like when I, I came to Christ eight years ago, and then I really made a bad mistake, and so I'm on God's second level of his will, and I'm on the third and fourth and fifth. <laughs> right? Versus God is foreordaining whatsoever comes to pass. And you say, well, how does that, that give me hope because I've screwed my life up so, so much? Do you know that God is working in these things sovereignly to bring you to a point to where you can understand that not even these things can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ? God is working all things out according to His will from the greatest thing to the least thing. And until you understand that and you rest in that and see the character of God, you will live in fear. So that's Paul's reasoning. What are these promises that Paul uh, reasons out? Well, notice in verse 32 he says, Okay, here are these things. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. 
how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You hear that? Now think about it. If, if while you are yet an enemy of Christ and hated God and Jesus Christ is on that tree for his people whose sins both Old and New Testament are being yanked off them, placed upon the head of Christ, him being crucified, I don't understand all the ins and outs of the atonement. But if you're a believer, every sin you've ever committed was yanked on his head while you were yet enemies. He held on the cross because he loved us and he loved the Father. How much more now that you have been redeemed and he's risen from the dead, is he for you? Do you believe that? Somebody put it this way. You know, if a guy gives his wife a $5,000 diamond ring, you think he's going to skimp on a wrapping paper? His son has shed his blood for his people. And until you grasp that Christ has substituted for you, and you are united to Christ in his resurrection, and all the benefits of the inheritance are yours in Christ, you will never, ever get out of passivity or paralysis, and you'll never take action. might be a sign of your own unbelief. But then he goes on to say this. Well, I, I like this uh, quote, and I, I don't want to miss this one. Octavius uh, Winslow says this. Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. And not Pilate for fear. Not the Jews for envy. But the Father for love. But notice also he says this. Who will bring charge against those whom God has chosen? Anybody going to bring any charge against those that Christ has already paid for? Again, I, I, if, if, you're, if, if you're not convinced of God's sovereign electing grace, then how in the world, if you're a professing Christian, are you ever going to have any peace? If the gospel is he and me, the me will always eat up the he. And, and it begins to be focused in on your response, not his work on your behalf. But the gospel is he alone in what he has done. Who shall charge anything to God's elect? It is God who justifies. Isaiah 50, 18 says this about that. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is a sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? There's no condemnation. And then he goes on further to reason. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You know, the, the, the gospel is divisive. It can't help but be divisive. And the reason is, it's saying that Jesus Christ is interceding for who? For his people. I, I don't know what you're going through. Uh, if you're a believer, that uh, I have no idea. Maybe you've messed up this weekend. Maybe you've goofed up 
uh, your life, your finances, you've goofed up your marriage, you've divorced, and uh, you're looking back on it, you go, yeah, you know, I see I had a lot of problems. Whatever it may, what, whatever it may be. But, but our text is telling us this, that, that God is for you. He is interceding for you. He cares about you. He prays for his people. Whether they're doing it right, getting it right, which is not many people or anybody, and those who are sliding off, he is interceding. And I'll tell you why it makes people, why it's divisive. is because I believe that non-believers get that about believers. Um, you've heard me say many times the reason they crucified Christ was not because he was good, but because he's different, right? The world loves good people. Jesus was more than good. He was different. And the world could not deal with that. Because his life reveals to all of us the sham that our lives are. And so it is those who are united to Christ that Christ is interceding for. They're no longer nice, but new. No longer good, but different. And therefore, uh, it can be divisive because they see that God is at work. And this is what our text is telling us. He intercedes uh, for his people. And then finally he says this, verse 35, Based on this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be led to the slaughter. Uh, John Stott says on this verse, we're climbing a staircase And this last question is the top step. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now think about it. Now listen. If you could lose your salvation, that means that would be like me losing my hand. But if God has chosen us in Christ and He is the head of the church and He is married to us and it's based on His commitment to us, not my commitment to Him, shall He cut off His hand? But the hand is gangrened. (laughs) Ah, well, but the hand shall not be cut off. The bomb of the gospel will come and cure the gangrene. If not in this life, in the life to come. Nothing shall separate us uh, from the love of Christ. You know, one of my favorite verses in 2 Timothy chapter 3 where where Timothy says this, and and if you're not a believer or if you're thinking about rejecting the, the faith, he says this, If you reject him, he will reject you. But if you're faithless, yet he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Do you see Paul's logic from front to back? Because you see, it's God who foreknew us. It's God who predestined us. It's God who called us. It's God who's justified us. And it's God who has already glorified us. We're already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. It's all of God. And Paul's logic is then what shall separate you from the love of Christ? And so out of that comes his great conviction. And what is this conviction? Well, it needs to be our conviction. Notice what he says in verse 27, 37 and following. Here's his conviction because of this. No In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Another translation says, Paul says, I'm persuaded. I'm convinced I'm persuaded. The same word that Paul used in the Greek when, I mean, when Herod Agrippa listened to Paul for quite some time. He was fascinated with Paul. And uh, he was uh, Jewish, so he understood the Old Testament. And Paul could lay out the Old Testament and show how Isaiah 53 was pointing to Christ. And, and you know what Agrippa said? Paul, you almost persuade me. But he didn't. But Paul was persuaded. And why was he persuaded? Because God called him before the world began. He met Jesus Christ. You know what I'm concerned about sometimes, and, and this is why I'm always concerned in the intellectual realm, which Presbyterians tend to wander in, which is good, nothing wrong with, you know, uh, Jonathan Edwards said that the mind is the gate to the heart, okay? Real devotion begins with real thinking. And uh, C.S. Lewis, I was reading in Mere Christ- Christianity this past week, he said that uh, Christianity is a thinking man's religion. It's a working religion. You've got to think it through. That's why Paul always says to the Romans, I reckon these things to be so. That's why he, he is using uh, the logic uh, that is here. But my concern is that maybe some of you, maybe some of you have been persuaded, but not this way. You've entered the kingdom of God or you think you've entered the kingdom of God because, you know, you've listened to, listened to everything else that's out there and this makes sense to you, therefore you believe. You will never cut it. You'll never make it that way because Paul was persuaded by God himself. I was talking to uh, my son Jack, my youngest son. We were talking about different artists who professed faith at one time, who seemed to be, have slipped away or seemed to be slipping away. And we were kind of talking about uh, the, what caused them to stumble. And one of their greatest stumbling blocks was this idea of the, of the sovereignty of God. And I can see it being a stumbling block if you're trying to figure this thing out. And this is why Paul tells us in other passages, such as 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 1, he speaks of a spiritual knowledge. And he's not talking about something airy. He is saying knowledge that comes from the Holy Spirit, i.e. you're born again. You're convinced by the Spirit. And therefore you begin to be convinced that nothing shall separate you from the love of Christ. I'm almost through. But some of you might go, how can I know if I'm really one of God's people? And by the way, if you want to know, you can know. Just say, God, am I one of yours? And, and, and if he says no, but if you want to be, you can be. <laughs> Trust me, he, he will. Whosoever will may come. Uh, remember, he, real freedom and liberty comes through the sovereignty of God. But some of you might go, how can I really know? Uh, because you know, again, that, that your life is not what it seems to be. It seems like God is against me. He's not for me. It seems like everything I do, my business goes south and my health is going bad and my marriage failed. And How can I be convinced of God's uh, love? The way you're convinced of God's love is to look away from the circumstances and look at His promises. And who he is. I, I don't know how to explain that. You know, I'm married to my wife. 
We took vows when we lived together and we're, going, we're living life together. And so what I know what that looks like because there's a relationship that's there. So what does it look like? It looks like that you begin to respond to the vows and believe his character and you start acting by faith on what God says. And so what is Paul's conviction? He says, neither death or life will separate me. Not death or life. Death can't separate me. I was talking to uh, Benson Bottoms this week uh, uh, who is a chaplain, uh, a hospice chaplain. And he was telling me how difficult it is for men versus women to die. He said that women die much more fulfilled. Maybe it's because of relationships and having children or being nurturing people. But he said that men struggle because they look back on their life and they look and they go, what have I accomplished? What has my life meant? Because they think their life is based on performance. But you see, for the Christian, you don't look back and have regret. Because the only way that you're going to look back is look back at the performance of Christ on your behalf. He has died. Not only death, but life. There are a lot of things in this life that can affect us. Principalities and powers. Devils, demons, angels. And then finally he says, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul begins to talk about space and time. There's nothing in space. There's nothing in time. Nothing past, nothing future. No height, no depth can separate you. Because of God's love on our behalf. Paul is probably referring to Psalm 139 here. Where shall I go from God's spirit? The question is asked and the answer is through the psalm. Throughout the psalm. I, I, I can't go anywhere apart from you because you're the sovereign Lord who has set your love upon me. Let me, let me close by saying this. That when Mary Beth married me, I told her at that time that I don't know where this ship's going. And uh, the reason I don't know where this ship is going is because I, I believe, Mary Beth, I'm already married. <laughs> and I'm married to Christ, so I kind of understand what it means to be a wife, but I'm married to Jesus. And uh, I know this. I, I know that he is worth submitting to. And so if you get on my boat, you're on, I'm on his boat. <laughs> Wherever that boat heads. Calm waters, tough waters. But the fact of the matter is, that boat has a destination. 33 years ago, she married me. We've been on this boat together. And it's been an interesting ride. But here we are today. And God has been faithful. Oh, dear brother and sister in Christ, I don't know what your depressions are. I don't know what your discouragements are. I don't know how broken your life is. I don't know if you've utterly failed and ruined your life. He won't let you go. Nothing, nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your grace is truly your grace, not our response. 
I pray for those who are here who have never really heard the gospel. Lord, that they would look to Christ for whosoever will may come. And so I pray that they would look to Christ and see the beauty of a love that they will never experience in this earth. And Father, for my dear brothers and sisters this morning who are really doubting your sovereignty or your love, would your spirit minister to them as we take communion this morning? Do you love them and you care for them? And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.